All right, I'm going to ask you to take your Bible this morning and turn to the book of James chapter 2. We are back in our journey through James. We have had two wonderful weeks where we have celebrated the most significant and amazing reality in the Christian faith, and that is the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a wonderful uh, two weekends it was for us here at PBC. And I want to add my uh, word of thanks uh, to that which you've already heard from Pastor Brian uh, this morning for all of the amazing work that was done, uh, led by different pastors on our team and interns, but, but could not have happened without the body coming together. So thank you. And uh, we're praying that God will continue to bear fruit in our lives and in our church and our community to that effect. But this morning, we get to go back and listen again to Pastor James as we take our journey now to the second chapter of his book and sort of to kind of make sure we're ready to hear what he has to say. Let me just remind you that James has made three points uh, in chapter one to kind of get us uh, in gear to hear what we are about to hear. So the first thing that James wants you to remember is that as a Christian, you are part of a new community of people. You are his new creation and are members of his glorious kingdom. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 1. You are members of the new Israel that Jesus Christ is forming, and though that kingdom hasn't yet appeared, you are members of that kingdom. And so that's the first thing. We are new people, the new people of God, and members of his glorious kingdom. The second thing James wants you to know is this. While we are members of a glorious kingdom, that kingdom and its time have not yet been established on the earth. So we are members of a kingdom that has a glorious Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are members of of that kingdom, but that kingdom has not yet been established on earth. And so that's the second thing James wants you to see. And you can see that at the end of James chapter uh, 1, verse 1. Did I say verse 2? It's actually verse 1. And then the third thing that James is going to point out is this, that while you are here waiting for that kingdom, he has spread you throughout all the little kingdoms of the world to serve as his representative and his gospel ambassador. That's what Jesus meant in Matthew chapter 5 when he talked about you being salt and light. And the way that we are to do this, the way that we are to represent the values and the priorities of this glorious kingdom over which the Lord Jesus rules is we are to display a certain kind of faith a living faith, an authentic faith. We are to display a living faith that has been shaped by the values of this big kingdom to all the little kingdoms where the Lord has spread us as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And we've learned from James that for that faith to be effective, it has to be wholehearted, it has to be single-focused, and it has to be fully trusting. And we've said that together, so let's say it again. The kind of faith that is going to make a difference in all the little kingdoms of the world 
and that's going to represent the big kingdom to those little kingdoms is the faith that is wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting. Can we say it one more time? That kind of faith is wholehearted, single-focused, and fully trusting in the Lord and in the wisdom that is found in his word. And chapter 1 is about how that faith is formed up in the life of a believer. And so in verses 1 through 12, that kind of faith is actually strengthened as we endure trials. And then beginning in verse 13 and going all the way through verse 18, James says, now the kind of faith that has been strengthened by enduring trials is actually validated by resisting temptation. And then in the last part of the chapter, verses 19 through 27, it is sustained. How is that kind of faith sustained? And James says it is sustained when you are quick to hear and slow to speak with regard to God's word. When you receive with humble submissiveness the word of God that God implanted in your heart when you became a believer. So this is where we left James at the end of chapter 1. That, that there is a mission that we have as the new people of God in all the little kingdoms of the world where we have been sent to be ambassadors for the big kingdom over which Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's going to require of us that we display our living faith in ways that are credible and in ways that are authentic to this kind of a world. Now, that brings us to chapter 2. And uh, chapter 2 is going to now begin a section in James where James is going to sit down and he's going to talk really frankly and really directly to these new kingdom people because of something that is going on in their life that is actually a huge disconnect with their claim and, and what everybody is experiencing. So there's a disconnect now that James is going to talk about, and he's going to talk about it very clearly and very directly because whatever this disconnect is, it has the, the devastating potential of contradicting their claims and discrediting their faith, and it actually does damage to the gospel message they have been called to declare and to display in all the little kingdoms of the world. So this is a very, very significant thing. And by the time we get to the end of James, James is actually going to talk about several disconnects. But this morning in verse 1 and going all the way down to verse 13 of chapter 2, he is going to talk about the devastating gospel damage that a certain kind of heart and a certain kind of service actually does to our faith and to the gospel. Now, does James have your attention yet? I mean, honestly, when you sit down and, and you listen to what you're about to hear, there are parts of this that are very, very piercing. And this is what I said to you as we ended chapter 1, and we sort of took some time to review what James was doing. James is a pastor and maybe the best way for us to read the book of James is to let James actually pastor us, to let him pastor you and to let him pastor me as we walk through 
what he has to say. So that's what I want to do this morning in our time together. I want to just walk you through what James had to say to his, to his people and really what the Holy Spirit inspired him to say to us. And so let's begin by, by noting that in chapter 2, verse 1, James begins with a very forceful declaration or exhortation. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, this statement is actually coming out of a claim that the readers are making. They are making the claim that they are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then they're going to tell you something about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of glory. And when, when James talks this way about the Lord, he's, he's actually observing that what you and I would both observe, and, and that is this, that Jesus Christ isn't just our Lord, he is actually the ruler, he is actually the most exalted Lord, the highest ruler of a realm called glory. If you read the Old Testament, oftentimes the realm in which God resides is called the realm of glory. And so here is the Apostle James and, or, or, and James congregation, and he is saying to them, now when you hold your faith, in other words, when, when you make this claim, later on in the chapter, he's going to talk about two people who make a claim. And their claim is, I have faith. I hold faith. And so James says, when you hold this faith, In the Lord Jesus, when you claim that you are a committed disciple and a a loyal servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you hold that claim, there's something that I want to talk to you about. And by the way, that Lord Jesus Christ isn't just the Lord of, of your life. He is actually the most exalted ruler over a realm that is far greater than the little realm that you happen to be occupying wherever you are in the little kingdoms of the world. And so here's my claim. In other words, if I'm reading this, I'm coming to this chapter with a claim like this. The Lord Jesus Christ is not just the Messiah that the Old Testament prophets said would come. He is actually a much greater person. He is the Lord of glory. He's the highest, most exalted person in a realm far greater than this little kingdom that I live in. He is the Lord of heaven, and I have the high honor and the privilege of being his servant. Would you agree with that this morning? I see a lot of you nodding your head. Actually, we would say that, wouldn't we? What an honor it is that we've been invited into that kingdom. What an incredible Lord we have. What an amazing privilege it is to be his servant. However, James is going to talk about something that these wonderful servants were actually working out in the way they served others. And what he's going to talk about is incompatible with the way that Jesus served when he was here. And that's what he means when he says, my brothers, show no partiality. Whatever is happening in the life of these people, in the ministry, in their serving, it was very different than what the Lord Jesus Christ did, and it was motivated by a very different motive. 
And so there is this contradiction that is happening between their claim and their conduct. There's a huge disconnect between what they claim to be, we are committed servants, and what they are actually doing, they are serving sinfully. And so let's talk about how that actually happened. The word that James uses for partiality means to make judgments or to show favoritism based on external appearance that is motivated by the hope of gaining some personal advantage. That's what partiality means. Sometimes people would use the word favoritism. There's a really ugly word for this. It's the word prejudice. And so James is saying, as I'm talking to you, I want to sit you down and I want to talk to you about something that is happening in your church and it's coming out of your heart. The way that the grammar uh, uh, talks about this in verse 1 of chapter 2 actually indicates that this was really going on in the church while James was writing. In other words, you could say it this way. James would actually be saying, my brothers, stop showing partiality as you hold your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Stop showing partiality or favoritism while you claim to be a servant of Jesus Christ. That's a very serious and very sobering charge. I mean, think about it for a minute. If, if, if James were actually here today and he looked at you and right off the bat, he said to you, I want to talk to all of you here at PBC because you have a big problem in your church. And the problem that you have in your church is, is a problem that is coming out of your own hearts. And what's coming out of your own hearts is the sin of prejudice. What's coming out of your own heart is the sin of favoritism. What is coming out of your own heart is what the Bible calls partiality, and it's when you do something based on what you see with the motive of that person that you're doing that for actually being able to help you in some way, to advantage you in some way, to give you some credibility, to meet some need that you have or some perception that you want people to have about you. If, if James were looking at us this morning and he were sort of coming at us that way, I think he would have all of our attention. I think all of us would sit up and say, that can't be true. And that certainly can't be true about me. I'm not a person who shows partiality. I'm not a person who shows favoritism, and I hate prejudice. And so here is James, and he's talking to people just like us. And so how do we hear a sermon like this? I can just tell you how it hit me as I was preparing it. And, and it was, Lord, is there, is there another passage we could go to? Could Holy Week be three Sundays in a row? Because this is very, very piercing. This is very difficult. And, and I'm just going to tell you how it is in my life, and I'm sure this is true in your life. When we come to a text like this that has this kind of punch to it, it's very easy to say, well, this really isn't about me. There might be some people who need this, but this isn't about me. And in fact, I would say this to many of us. This is our default mode when we come to church. I want to hear a good sermon. I want to take good notes. I want to learn things. 
but, but this really isn't about me. And I want to ask you to do something this morning. I want, you, I want you to do something. I want you to change one setting on your mind or in your heart as you come to a text like this. Can you assume for this Sunday that James is talking to you? Like I had to come to realize James was talking to me. So can you do that this morning? Would you just take a minute and say to the Lord, Lord, whatever James is about to to say here, I'm going to take it as something you want to say to me. And I'm going to make that commitment here. I've already done it, but I'm going to make my own commitment to you. All right, so what does James do now that he has the attention of these people? What does he do? So the next thing he does, this is the second thing he does, is he lovingly confronts them, and you can see the confrontation in verses 2 through 4. And, and basically what he's going to do now is he's going to say, look, you claim to be serving Jesus as you serve one another, and you're holding that claim with partiality. And now I'm going to show you the partiality. I'm going to actually show you what it looks like in your church. I'm going to show you what it looks like in your heart. And so the context is in verse 2. Two men come into a worship service with vastly different appearance. All right? One man is wearing clothing that clearly indicates he's an important and influential person in the community. He has a gold ring on his finger. He is wearing brilliant white garments that are spotless and shiny. It's really evident when this man walks in the door that somebody important and somebody influential has come to the service. The other man is wearing clothing that makes clear he is desperately poor. His clothing, according to James, is shabby. The word literally means covered with the vilest of filth. So let's put a little context to this. In James' day, only the wealthy of wealthy people could afford a wardrobe full of clothing, right? What you and I have in our closets would never be true for the average person living in the first century. Only the wealthiest people had the kind of resources to have a closet full of clothing. Most common people had, at the most, two garments, one that they would wear and the other that they would wash, But if you were destitute, if you were desperately poor, how many garments did you have? You had one. And you wore it all the time. You wore it when you worked. You wore it when you walked. You wore it everywhere. And pretty soon that garment would start to show wear and tear. And then it would become dirty. And pretty soon it would be vile. And so now we're talking about somebody coming into the worship service of this early church and he's, his clothing is shabby. It is filthy. So how were these two people served and received when they came into the church? And they came into the service. Right? Here are people now who are, who are saying, we are servants of the greatest king and the highest Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And two people have come into his house to worship him or to come to a worship service, and, uh, and they both are welcomed. And they both have things said to them, right? So in, in chapter 1, it's interesting uh, that James says, be quick to hear, be slow to speak, 
And now he's going to talk about the eye, all right? Because the sin of partiality always involves your eye. It always involves something that you observe. And so here are these two people, and they've come in, and, uh, and, and now they're going to receive a service from these believers, right? The, when, when the two men come in, they get different words, and they get a different kind of service. As soon as they saw the wealthy man and realized the possible implications and advantages of his visit, he was immediately ushered to a choice seat of honor worthy of someone of his status and of his standing. The poor man, while he was not ignored or cast out, was quietly ushered to a place where he would not get in the way of their objective with the rich man. He was welcomed, but not at all like the rich man. So let me give you um, maybe an illustration that we'll work on as we go through the sermon, all right? I want you to imagine that uh, a, a, an, an owner of a wonderful resort, I mean, it's got everything. It's, it's a huge resort complex, restaurants all over the place. It's just, uh, it's just amazing. And he has hired you to be one of his employees at that resort. And you have the amazing opportunity to greet the guests that come to see your master and the owner of the resort and to stay in his resort and to enjoy all that he has to offer. And part of your job is to oversee where people park. In other words, in our day and age, we would say you're in charge of all the valet parking. And you are around and you take notice of who's coming in and and all of a sudden somebody comes in and they are driving one of the most expensive cars on the market. And the minute they open the door of their car and step out, you immediately know that this person is somebody with a great deal of wealth. And if you give good attention to this person, and you give good help to this person, at the end, there could be something in it for you. And so you run up and you say, sir, so glad you and your wife are here. Hey, let me open the door for you. Come on out. And, uh, and, and, and by the way, do you want your car vacuumed and, and washed? You want the tires uh, glossed while you're in there? And, and let me just, don't even worry about it. We're going to put your car in the safest pot uh, in the parking garage right close to where it won't get scratched. We're going to take good care of you. And off he goes. And about an hour later, an old truck, work truck, comes up. And it's got paint splatters all over it. And it looks like it's been through mud. It it looks like it came right out of the construction site. And it's got ladders and tools everywhere in the back. And it comes rumbling up. And and the guy in it is in in sort of a work, his work clothes, his outfit. And you can tell he's just come right off the job. And you're like, oh, my word. Um, but, but you know that you can't just, you've you got to handle this guy. And you're like, you know what, sir, um, I'm glad you're here. Why don't you take your truck and just make sure you take it all the way to the back and put it in the very back corner of the lot. And then there's a stair down the back, and you just go down that stair, and you can go around the back, and there's an entrance uh, for you there. Hey, have a great time while you're here. That, that is a modern-day equivalent 
of what I think James is talking about. And he's saying something to these people. He's saying, when you do this, you have created an ungodly division in this body of Christ where there should be no division. You have a unified father with a unified word who's created a unified body where there is no difference there is no Jew nor Gentile. There is no difference. Everybody is equal in the size created. You've actually done something that Jesus didn't do. In fact, you've undone something that Jesus did. And I want you to notice something. The division was not between the poor and the rich. The division was between themselves and the poor. And that's what... James says when he says, you have made divisions among yourselves and you have become judges that were driven by evil motives that are completely incompatible with the nature and the character and the will of the one you claim to serve. Right? Do we have this picture in our mind? So that brings me to this. Who is the rich man and who is the poor man? Who is the rich man and who is the poor man? And I think that there are some clues in the text. Whoever this rich man is, he is obviously well acquainted with what's going on in this gathering. All right? Now remember, James is writing 15 years after all of the events of what we celebrated this last week took place, the birth of the church. And the early Christians were were generally Jewish. And because of the persecution that came up in chapter 8 of the book of Acts, they were scattered all over the world. And when they went into their new cities, the first place they gathered was with other Jews. Every time Paul went to a city, he started his ministry with the Jews. And so that's why I think James uses the word synagogue for the word assembly. When somebody comes into verse 2, when somebody comes into your synagogue, your assembly. So the first clue that we have about the identity of this rich man is that he is well aware of what happens in a Jewish synagogue and he has come to hear some news that has come to his town. And the news that has come to his town has to do with the Messiah. And he's been waiting to hear about this Messiah his whole life. Now, this man has, obviously, status. He wears a white linen garment. He has all of the trappings of status and honor. Can you think of anybody that Jesus described as loving to have and receive honor? He was shown to the chief seat, right, in the congregation. Jesus said there are people who love to be shown honor. They love to receive respect. They expect and even demand that they be given the chief and honorable seat at a banquet or in a church or or in the synagogue. They insist that you call them by their title, rabbi, right? If you want sort of a picture of this, I don't know 
Uh, you may not be familiar with it, but our family's been watching uh, a Christian uh, series called The Chosen. And in The Chosen, uh, in the city of Capernaum, there are a group of these men, and you can tell they are better dressed than anybody. They are the religious leaders, and they are very good at looking like servants when the real high leadership shows up. They are so good about serving and being deferential and making sure the important people know that they're serving, but how do they treat everybody else? And what do they demand from everybody else? And so Jesus looks at these people and he says, let me tell you, these people, you can recognize what's in their heart because of what's coming out of their mouth. They get angry when you don't call them the right title. They demand to be seated at the right place. They want honor and respect. And one of these people has just come into the church service. I personally think this is a Jewish religious leader in one of those towns that has heard that somebody's talking about Messiah and they want to come in. And as soon as they come in, these people are going, wow, we have an important religious person in our midst and we better, we better give to him what he expects because we have cravings of our own. He craves something that we can give him, and we're going to give him what he wants because we have cravings of our own. We want him to be on our side. We want him to be able to do what we need him to do. We're going to find out some more about this man here in just a minute. Now, who is the poor man? The word that James uses for the poor man is actually a very intentional word, and he's wanting to make sure you pick up on this. It's the same word that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount when he said this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. This term is actually talking about someone who is a true believer and a true follower, and someone who is truly humble in the sight of God. And this person has come into the service, and he gets a very different reception. He is ignored, and actually he is dishonored. Now, folks, honestly, this is not about whether or not you have money or cars or clothes There are many, many rich people that God has entrusted wealth to who are humble and who are poor in spirit, and they would actually occupy the place of this brother that we're talking about. And I just want to make sure, because sometimes when you read uh, James, it can almost become like it's, it's a problem to have this world's goods. And that's certainly not what James is talking about here. He's talking about what happens to us when we react to somebody who has those things. That's what he's really talking about, all right? And so that brings us then to the third thing, and that is this. James is now going to give them a very patient explanation of why this is such a problem. Look at verse 5. The first thing he says is, listen. Remember in chapter 1, he said, be swift to hear. He's going to go back to that now. He's going to say, you need to listen, and he's going to point you to the Scripture. He's going to tell you something from the Word of God. And here's what he's going to say. In essence, let me sum it up this way. He's going to say, when you operate this way, 
when you let your craving for what this wealthy man can give you, what this man with influence and honor and status can give you, affect the way you serve him and affect the way you serve a brother, then you have dishonored the one that God has honored. And so this is what he says. Listen up in verse 5. My beloved brothers, has God has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? The person you dishonored is someone who loves God. You can see that at the end of verse 5. He, he's receiving a kingdom that God promised to give to those who love him. So this person is someone who loves God. He's someone that God has chosen. He's someone who's truly rich in the realm that really matters, the kingdom of God, and he has been granted high status and honor as a ruling heir in the kingdom where Jesus Christ is the glorious Lord. In other words, you just dishonored a friend of God. You took a friend of God and you treated him shamefully. So let's go back to our illustration. That guy in the truck, he does exactly what you told him to do. He takes his truck and all its tools, and he goes and parks in the the farthest corner away from everybody else, and you don't see him again. But a couple hours later, the owner comes out, and this guy is with him, and the owner has his arm around him, and he's walking up to you, and he's saying goodbye to him, and just before he says goodbye to him, he hugs him and he kisses him on the cheek. And that guy goes up the stairs to the very back corner, starts his truck up, and five minutes later he rumbles out, and the owner stands there and he's waving like this. And uh, he turns away, and just as he's going away, he goes, that was my son. That was my son. He's uh, working at home today. He, he doing stuff, projects at his house. But I, uh, we always have lunch, and he never misses. And so he just—I told him to come on his work clothes, and and he came in. And you're sitting there going, "Oh my word! You just got the picture that James is trying to help you see." This poor man that came into your church that you said, look, hey, I'm glad you're here today. Hope you have a great time here. By the way, go sit over there and and just, just, you know, that's a good place for you. And all the while, you're giving all this fawning attention to this person that has wealth and honor. You picked the wrong person. If you were going to pick somebody, you picked the wrong person. You picked an enemy of God. You actually honored someone who dishonors God. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, notice what he says here in the text. You have picked someone who God has dishonored or who's dishonoring God. You have dishonored the poor man. And then he says in verse 6, are not the rich ones who persecute you and drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Now go back to who we think the rich man is. Here is a Jewish religious leader with all of this honor and all of this glory, and he comes because he's 
eager to hear what you have to say about the Messiah. And what you have to say about the Messiah is this. His name is Jesus. And he was born in Bethlehem, and he arose and was raised in Nazareth, and then he was crucified on a Roman court. What do you think that religious leader is going to do next? Unless the Spirit of God opens his eyes, he is going to stand up and he's going to accuse you of blasphemy because this is not who Messiah is. That Jesus is not the Son of God. He is not the Messiah. He was crucified on a Roman uh, cross. And then that religious leader is going to spend the rest of his time and the rest of his energy, and he's going to use all of his influence to persecute you. And by the time you get to James chapter 5, that's exactly what happened. These people are dragging you into courts. They are withholding your wages, and they're taking away your homes. And James says that's the person that you chose to honor. And the reason that you did that is because of an evil motive in your heart. Now, here's where we have to step back and realize I can't see your heart and you can't see my heart. But God can't. And James, under inspiration, is looking at his readers and he is saying to them, this is going on in your heart. You do have an evil motive. You are making distinctions about how you serve this person and how you serve that person. And what's driving all of that is what you see and what you want. You want something that you perceive this wealthy man can give you and you don't think that poor brother has the ability to do a whole lot for you. And so while I'm not going to ignore him and I'm glad he's here and I'm certainly not going to cast him out, you go over there and and you stand there and and may the Lord Lord bless you today and I'm going to give my attention over here to make sure this man has the best experience possible because he has something that I want. Now here's what I want to ask you this morning. Remember I said I want you to turn the default mode to this. James is talking to me. James is talking to me. So is this going on in your heart? Do you make decisions about who you serve based on what you think they can give you? Do you spend the time you spend with the people you spend and and not the people you choose not to spend with because of things you want that this group can give you that this group in this kingdom has no ability to give you? You love these people. Hey, these people, you know, they're, they're brothers in Christ, and we care about them, and, and I'm glad you're here, but, but, I, but actually, this is what I'm doing. This is where I'm going. This is what James is going after here in our lives. And here's what he says in verses 11 through, uh, 8 through 11. That this is now he's going to come to this really convicting revelation. He says, when you act this way, when you show partiality, You are sinning against the royal law of Christ's kingdom. All right, so this is now the fourth idea. There's there's a convicting revelation, and it goes like this. 
if you really are fulfilling the kingdom law, that's the idea of royal law. If you really are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, what is that? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But before you just walk away thinking, okay, I'm good, I am loving my neighbor as myself, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and you have been convicted by the law as a transgressor. James says, really, if we're going to be honest, if you are serving certain way, in certain ways and for certain motives, you're really not loving your neighbor. Who are you loving? Let me go back to my valet illustration. So here's a guy. He's got, you know, a beautiful car, wealthy clothes. It's very evident. I'm going to be super nice to him. I'm going to offer him all kinds of things that I didn't offer to the guy in the truck. Why? Because I know that this guy has what? He's got a pocket full of money. And I'm hoping that if I give him the kind of attention that he craves and deserves that some of that money will come out of his pocket and go into mine. Now, maybe for you it's not money. Maybe it's influence. Maybe it's significance. Maybe it's recognition. I'm going to hang with these people because they are and they have and they do and I want. And Jesus says, and James confers, when you do this, You are not loving your neighbor. You are loving you. You are not serving like Jesus served. You are serving the way the world serves. This is a very worldly way to serve. And when you sin in this way, you actually break the whole law. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees would compartmentalize the law into 613 parts. And they had a very complex way of weighting all of those 613 parts. And some of the parts, if you broke, well, okay, you broke that part. We'll take care of that. But you haven't really broke the big parts of the law. And James is exploding that thinking in our mind. He's saying, look, if you think it's okay and that maybe partiality is just a little problem, but you're not guilty of the big problems like adultery and murder, you don't get it. Because this isn't a divided up law. This is a unified law that expresses the unified will of one lawgiver. Think of it this way. If I had a pane of glass up here and I were talking away and and you had a slingshot and and while I was talking, you got distracted. You thought, you know, I wonder if this slingshot is working. And you pulled out your slingshot and, and, and you, you know, foolishly you put a piece of a rock in there or something and you, and you let it fly and, and it hit the corner of the glass. And it just shattered the corner of the glass. You know what you just did? You broke the glass. No, no, no. I didn't break the glass. I just broke the corner. No, no, no. You broke the glass. That's what James is saying. I didn't break the law. I just showed partiality. No, no, no. You broke the law. Well, I just broke a little. No, no, no. You broke the whole thing. And when you break the law, you get judgment. That's what you get. But you know what you want? You want mercy. 
And that's the final thing we see in this text. That's the grace-based solution in verses 12 to 13. James says, speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law. And then he puts the word liberty there. Wait a minute. How did the law that could only bring sin and death all of a sudden become a law of liberty? And the answer is somebody fulfilled it for you. There was a time, just to close this out, where you and I were the ones that showed up in God's assembly room and we were covered with filth. Isaiah said all of our garments are what? Filthy rags. And God would have been in his rights to say, take that filth out. But that's not what he did. He said, bring, bring that person here. And I didn't get, and you didn't get relegated to some corner back in the back dark places where, where nobody could see. We were brought to the very best seat in the house. We came to the mercy seat. And when we were standing there, the judge, the lawgiver, stood up and said, I want you to take those garments off, and I want you to put these garments on. And he clothed us with the unimaginable, brilliant white robe that represents the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then he gave us a crown, and then he seated us right next to him and right next to his son, and he made us ruler heirs of the kingdom that is coming. Then he said to us, mercy triumphs over judgment. And then we go down in our little kingdoms and in our little churches and somebody comes in and instead of doing that, we are like, go stand in the corner over there and don't make a mess. And oh, hey, hey you know what? This, you, you're going to love it here. We, we're so glad you're here. And James says, that is awful. So what do I do? Well, I've got to acknowledge the roots of this. The roots of this are pride, evil cravings. I've got to deal with the fruit of this. The fruit of this is the arrogance that comes out, the demands that I make, the the unwillingness to submit. These are all part of what James is going to deal with as we go through the book. And then I've got to just come to God and say, God, I need mercy. I need mercy. I was sitting at my desk this week thinking about this, and this was sitting on my desk because I was working on the kids' sermon or the kids' message. And I was talking to some of our pastors. We were on a phone call together, and and, uh, there was a need that came up in our church that we had to address. So I'm sitting there. This is Literally, I'm sitting at my desk. This is on the corner, so I can see it. And I'm in my chair, and I'm sort of like looking out the window, and this is in the corner. And so uh, I'll not say who these pastors were, but one of these pastors is an amazing... We have amazing pastors, so I'm not singling this one out above the others. But for the sake of the story, this is a guy that you would never know had the kind of opportunities that come his way. Um, I I regularly uh, get phone calls from people that... Are, are very well placed in the community or, or in other ministries wanting to know if this person can come or this. He's, he, and you would never know that he never talks about these things. He never brings it up. 
but he's probably the busy, one of the busiest pastors on our team. And so uh, we were talking together and this need came up and we were trying to figure out who could do this. And about five minutes into the conversation, he raises his hand and says, Pastor, I'll do it. You can't do it. You are too busy to do that. I mean, think about all of the key strategic things you're doing here. You can't do that. I can't add that to your plate. And he said to me, as only he can, very very kindly, very graciously, he said, Pastor, the people that will be impacted by this need to be served. I didn't get it. Hung up my phone. I thanked him, hung up my phone, and I'm working away, you know, getting this message together, thinking about what I'm going to say to the kids, and this is sitting there. And I, I'm not kidding you. This didn't happen, but it felt like it happened. It felt like God took his hand and slammed it down on my desk. You ever had somebody do that? They come and they slam their hand down on your desk, and everything jumps. That's what it felt like. And I realized the sin of partiality is in our church at the highest levels in my heart. Remember I told you we need to make sure we let the Lord speak to us. This is in my heart. I'm one of the busiest men in our church who has opportunities way outside of our church that most of us would never even dream of was the instrument that God used to say, look, that is what should have come out of your mouth. That's what should have come out of you. And the reason it didn't come out of your mouth is it wasn't in your heart. And so, folks, this morning, I think we all need to come to a place where we look at our heart. Because the sin of partiality can be disguised in a lot of ways. And the Spirit of God is the only one who knows what's really going on in your heart. I don't know what's going on in your heart. You don't know what's going on in somebody else's heart. But you do know what God is doing in your heart. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church to be the kind of place where we serve because you served not because of what we get, not because of the honor we receive or the satisfaction we receive or the significance it gives us, but because it's what you would do. And you called us to be like you. Father, I've already asked you to forgive my own heart for this. I pray that you would do that work in me that needs to be done so that that desire would actually be solidified as we all have to do when we repent of things. Lord, I pray that you would speak as you've spoken to me to people in our church. Lord, we want to be a church that is not guilty of the sin of partiality, that we would not serve with the kind of motives that James is talking about here, but that we would serve in a way that people would feel and see and experience your love for them, And we'll pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.